Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening, everyone, and what a great crowd. Welcome to How Investigative Journalism Projects Can Change the World, a special storyology Walkley event presented in partnership with Sydney University and Sydney Ideas. To start, I'd like to acknowledge that we're all on Aboriginal land and pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, their elders past and present. I'm Louisa Graham, Chief Executive of the Walkley Foundation, We're working to make the bonds of trust between the media and public stronger than ever. And part of that is events like this that invite a broad audience to learn more about how great journalism is made. And we look to the future in this disrupted time for media and hope to lead conversations like this about where journalism is heading. And I think last week's announcement on the Fairfax 9 merger was a shock to us all. We're delighted to work with Sydney University and Sydney Ideas, and I'd especially like to thank Kirsten and Verity and the team who have worked hard to present this free talk where everyone can be part of the conversation. The Walkley Foundation is a not-for-profit charity, and we thank the many partners and the individuals who support us. And we will be back on September the 6th when we present again, in partnership with the Sydney University, a special guest from the US, investigative journalist Robert J. Rosenthal. I'll hand you over to tonight's moderator, Sydney University's Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, Anne-Marie Jargos. Uh, good evening and welcome. Well, now you know who I am, Anna-Marie Jargos. Big warm welcome to the University of Sydney and this panel event uh, co-curated by the University's Sydney Ideas and the Walkley Foundation. So we've got a fantastic panel curated for you this evening. Investigative journalism is a kind of long-form reporting, I guess. It takes more time, more resources, more institutional backing and more grit than many other forms of journalism And what a great time to be thinking about it now as our immersive digital and social media environments disrupt and transform legacy media formats. And especially right now as the Nine Network proposes to take over Fairfax Media with all the potential implications that has for journalistic quality and independence. So first of all, I'd like to uh, introduce Alison Sandy sitting in the very middle here of our panel. Um, Alison is a Freedom of Information Editor for the Seven Network. Last year she lodged more than 800 Freedom of Information applications nationwide and was a finalist for two Walkley Awards for her work on child brides and campus-based sexual assault. Alison, child brides and sexual assault are very serious, very contested issues. Is investigative journalism something that some people are more cut out for than others? Uh, 
Alison, 13 years of investigative journalist at Grunt and Oprah gets the scoop. <laughs> no wonder investigative journalists need to have a thick skin. Okay, next I'd like to introduce Michael West, uh, who's sitting to Alison's far side. Um, Michael worked for eight years for Rupert Murdoch's The Australian, another eight years for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald at Fairfax Media, before founding his own media outlet, michaelwest.com.au. Michael Having been employed by big media and now as the founder of an independent media outlet, you've seen things, I guess, from both sides. What do you see as the greatest contemporary threat to investigative journalism? There's two major threats, and I'm actually being threatened by two law firms rather than the moment. So the defamation is a clear threat to me, particularly being in my own. Um, but uh, there's, there's a broader industry sector threat, and it's, it's vital to the public interest. And that is, as it is by the merger or takeover of the nine Fairfax, media revenue is under pressure. Traditional media revenue is Google, Facebook, get 89% of the revenue that the newspapers continue to refuse to get. So if you work in a business with a flat revenue or declining revenue, it's been cost out all the way. I've the Fairfax through three or four redundancies until they finally took the axe to me. Uh, and so I had first-hand experience of the difficulties in getting stories up where you knew the best of interest were going to come after you. Self-censorship is a huge issue for journalists and editors and editorial management these days, particularly, and even the agency, let me say. And we won't talk about specific stories, but the agency has a lot of pressure, as you've all seen. 
even with the caps. Uh, but really, it's vital public interest law stories are told. My specialty is in showing the tool from big corporations and their intersection the way they, uh, react, uh, the way they deal with governance, with donations, corporate corruption, multinational tax avoidance, that kind of thing. It's squarely in public interest, but there is an incredible industry, a crisis management, PR people, lawyers, particularly. Uh, surrounding these big corporations as traditional media splinters breaks down and loses the will to make to, to have the big fights. So the latest thing about defamation by, by the New South Wales Bar Association bring back corporate defamation, big companies being able to sue again is an absolute shocker. Uh, before 2005 I was at uh, Murdoch's uh, in the Australian by PwC, Commonwealth Bank, and um, Qantas, a couple of others, there's a few leading lights, and uh, so if they bring this back, it's going to be a dire situation uh, for holding uh, Well, thanks for that depressingly frank diagnosis. I think a number of things you're bringing up there, Michael, will definitely, we want to loop back and touch on. Um, public interest, speaking truth to power, as you say, but traditional media disintegration and also a changing legislative slash regulatory environment, you know, all making some very tricky um, situations to negotiate. The third panellist I'd like to introduce is Gerard Ryle. With more than 20 years' experience and more than 80 journalism awards from seven countries, Gerard is the first non-American director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. He led the team that divulged the Panama Papers winning a Pulitzer Prize for journalism last year. Jared, thinking about the huge, complex and internationally collaborative investigative projects you've been part of, the Panama Papers just mentioned, the biggest collaboration in the history of journalism, with 11.5 million files, 140 politicians from more than 50 countries connected to offshore companies in 21 tax havens, I'm wondering how it feels to be in the middle of a really large investigative project. Yeah, look, I mean, for ICAJ, it's, it can be very exciting for us because you know, might be working with 400 reporters around the world from 80 different countries. So um, what we've done is we've actually managed to use technology better to bring all these reporters together and also to do something that's never been tried before in, in investigative reporting. Usually we're kind of lone wolves and we work alone. What we try to do at ICAJ is bring, you know, break down all those barriers, bring them all together and make them work together. And so it can be very exciting when you wake up in the morning because we basically have one rule at ICAJ and that if you find something from, say, a data source like the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers, you find the Queen or you find your Prime Minister, you have to let everybody know, so the whole 400 reporters know. And we automate that process so that if you wake up in the morning and there might be 20 new leads that we've found from the data, and that can be very exciting. And this is important, being an investigative reporter, it's a very, it's a long distance rate. It, it, you know, it might take sometimes, as Alice says, 12 years to do a story uh, before you get results. So you want to have little victories along the way. And it's very important, one thing I will say that I have now learned after doing this for almost 30 years, it's very important to share and to work as a team because if you can share your victories as you go along, it actually helps you um, to continue on that journey because sometimes you can feel like you've got to be defeated and you're not going to get there. About halfway through the Panama Papers, we were finding it very difficult to get traction with the media partners. People weren't finding stories. But it was a matter of, you know, these sort of 
little victories along the way allowed everyone to get excited again. You know, when you find Lionel Messi in there or you find the Prime Minister of Pakistan, suddenly everyone's energized, you can move forward. So one thing I would preach is always, don't, you don't have to do it the traditional way. You don't have to do it on your own. Find somebody in your newsroom that you can share information with. You know, I have never come across a reporter who has everything. And none of us can write, edit, research. We've all got particular skills. So if you team up with other people, you'll actually find you'll do a better job than if you try and do everything yourself. That's great. Thanks, Jared. And certainly I think that's a um, welcome counter to the popular cultural um, figure of the investigative journalist who is almost always a kind of a lone or perhaps a partnered figure um, whose one rule seems to be to keep any information tightly held until the big reveal. Um, now let me introduce Carrie Fellner, um, a Walkley award-winning journalist. Carrie started her career in broadcast journalism but quickly established her credentials as an investigative journalist after joining the Newcastle Herald in early 2016 with a series of stories on health and environmental issues. This year she's taken on a new role as an investigative reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald. Carrie, with your best known stories on toxic firefighting chemicals used on RAAF bases around Australia or your multi-platform series The Sorrow on Cabbage Tree Road, a potential cancer cluster at Williamtown, you've tended to work in small or regional communities. How do you cultivate and protect sources? Um, well, yeah, uh, for anyone not familiar, um, my work on contamination um, I, on Cabbage Tree Road, um, it was essentially talking to 50 families that had either someone had had cancer or they'd lost a loved one to cancer. Um, so in terms of journalism, a lot of people think of investigative journalism as um, chasing down money launderers and con men and things. Um, and that's certainly part of the job, but uh, this was really about just the common person and winning their trust um, and cultivating a relationship with them where they were able to tell you things that they you know, probably wouldn't even tell family members sometimes. So, um, yeah, that took a unique approach. Um, you know, you can't just... Uh, in, in the modern world of journalism, it's a lot of people sitting at their desks and ringing someone up for a 30-second grab, and obviously a, an approach like that is incredibly disrespectful to, to the person that you're interviewing in this kind of situation um, and, and it's just never going to work. So um, it involved a lot of time um, going from house to house, um, convincing the person to let me in um, and then I'd try and you know, talk to them and it's not just about sort of coming in and, and seizing the information from them. You know, you, you're trying to get a feel for who they are and what their life is like, you know, walking around the backyard and, um, you know, them, them showing you uh, little bits of who they are. And I, I find as a journalist as well, if you're telling a story, people want to know who that person is and not just what's happened to them. Um, so, so that was really my approach. And it, it's uh, sort of painstaking and time-consuming, but, um, yeah, I think in terms of a story like that, uh, you wouldn't want to do it any other way. Great, thanks. And again, I think that um, touching base on the cultivation of trust also brings up a notion of the long-form effort, I think, that investigative journalism often represents, and that has implications, I think, that we might like to tease out in later conversation. Finally, I'd like to introduce to you Mark Schoofs, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Mark has previously worked as a foreign correspondent and investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and as a senior editor at the independent non-profit newsroom, ProPublica. He's now the investigations and projects editor 
for BuzzFeed News in the United States. The rubric for our panel, Michael, Changing the World, is a big claim. What kind of change has your investigative journalism brought about? First of all, thank you. Thanks for walking that Let me give a shout out to uh, Dr. Navarro, who's the founder of the Federation of Australia, who's team uh, had a great story about Alice Burkett, the way Emma Hussar treats her staff, followed by many other organizations. We'll see whether that changes anything in the Australian government. Look, changing the world is a big And, you know, I, I think that's the best way journalism can do that. In our case, we had a remarkable supporter named Melissa Segura, who took apart the Chicago justice system by focusing on a single dirty cop who is accused of training more than 50 people for murders they did not commit. And because she didn't just tell the story as a story of one bad actor, but rather she took on the whole barrel of Chicago journalism, her incredible reporting has helped to exonerate nine
genocide can be carried out, the psychological tricks that you can play to lull people into going to their own slaughter. And I think that that kind of journalism seeps into people's brains. And ultimately, that's what we're talking about. Disseminating knowledge, <coughs> revealing facts that have not been known, not only so that you can free or exonerate many people from the crimes they did not commit, but so that all of us together can be more informed and have a deeper understanding of our world and hopefully engage in it in a more constructive way. Thanks, Mark. Well, that's a nice turning of our title on its head, I think, right from the start. Excellent work. Um, so maybe I can pick up, Mark, on something you were saying there around um, the notion of investigative journalism seeping into people's brains and minds and ask the panellists to think sort of quite broadly um, about how important, you know, how do you get into the brains and minds of people. How important is it and what do you do to hook readers? Um, is, it, is it a kind of, is the presentation of the story important? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about narrative structure as we move into a sort of multi-platform environment? These sorts of formats are getting more and more complex in terms of you know, securing audience attention. What's an investigative journalist's take on how to secure audience? Uh, well, I think um, you've got to sort of um, good journalism. It's a matter of the heart and head. So you, you have to you know, get them by the emotions, but you also have to make people think, and that's how you get people's attention. Um, and obviously, all sorts of factors then come into play as a result of that. Um, so, you know, things like television or images and videos are a way that you connect with people and you, you, know, you, you get them emotionally invested in your story. Podcasts are a really good example. But to me, the best journalism is analytical as well. Um, you know, it has that, that secondary sources. Um, it has a wider context to it than just the emotional punch at the beginning. So that's what we try to achieve with our contamination work. I think fundamentally, if you have a really good story, and that's something that people care about, you will always find an audience for it. I think there's been a lot of um, pushback in the last couple of years about different mediums and different ways of doing stories. And it actually splinters the journalism to the point where people forget that you have to have something that's of public interest in the first place to be able to tell the story. And I think we've gone away from that a bit too much. But having said that, of course, you've got to try and you know, do it across as many mediums as possible so you can get the biggest audience as possible. But you know, it fundamentally means you've got to have something that, that people care about. And often that's very difficult to decide. That's a judgment thing that journalists, good journalists, bring to the table. And it's no accident that the same investigative reporters find good stories over and over again because there is a kind of a science to this rather than it's not magic, it's something you apply. And there are criteria, I think, that journalists do apply to stories. So obviously there's a sort of a sense that you have to have a you have a story and that's what appeals. My very layperson's understanding though is that often some of the most dramatic investigative journalism has been around things that actually nobody cared about particularly and that part of bringing that into the public attention and making the public value it in a particular way, sometimes even right down to having to explain who these characters are, what these countries are, the rules that govern the situation, you know, quite a lot of complexity um, seems to be able to be achieved in very successful examples of investigative journalism. So I guess one of the things I would also throw out to you is, is there a kind of a, 
a clear-cut structure and process to investigations. For example, Carrie's mentioned sort of head and heart as a kind of a, a, a sort of a dual opposition. Jared's mentioned magic and science, you know, another kind of way I think of thinking about the rational and the effective in a, in a sort of slightly different way. Are there practices or rules that you follow or does it, is it story specific? Uh, yeah. um, we have a pretty... Uh, our team is 22 people spread across three continents and many cities. So we have a, a, a basically a, a formula for how we would go about this time. And I think you personally you write elements for me, the two very essential elements for every story, it's got to have human beings, you've got to have something that people care about, so you've got to have a human being, and ideally if you're writing a narrative, and the American narrative style is, is really different to Australia, but we can learn a lot from America, so I haven't worked in both countries. But the other key element is systemic problems, you know, basically if there's a drug we're taking and it's not curing us but killing us, then clearly that's something we're not expecting because we expect that the drugs we take have been checked for safety before we take them. So that's what I mean by systemic corruption. The best investigative stories have got that systemic corruption or systemic problems in the story, but also with human beings. And it's really as simple as that. You get those two, then you've got a great story. So a number of you have spoken already about that sort of 
moment where a narratively compelling case study or object or person can be used to sort of ladder out to bring visibility to a much greater uh, systemic situation. Can you sort of reflect in terms of your own personal experience about moments where you've realised you are onto a story? Have there been sort of moments across your careers collectively where you've sort of been pursuing, noodling away at something and suddenly it snaps into some relief as a potential story? I think there was um, one time I was Googling this company director that had signed an agreement and it turned out a little memorial notice popped up. Because um, my, my editor had been complaining beforehand. He said, oh, Carrie, your story's got everything, but it doesn't have any dead people in it. Like, I, I feel like it needs more dead people. <laughs> so I'm Googling this guy, and um, he's supposedly alive and well and signing all these company agreements, and then a little um, memorial notice pops up that he'd been cremated several years earlier. And I think that was my little light bulb where you've got a story. <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, that's I, like... A, Investigative journalism is incredibly um, painstaking and demoralising at times, but um, as I've mentioned before, it's those little light bulbs that get you through it. You can often come across the best story by accident. You know, I remember years ago working at The Age with Gary Hughes, and we were researching a story about something that we had a theory that something was happening, and eventually it led us to a library at, at Melbourne University. And in that library, we actually stumbled across a much better story. So it was by, I guess, also, sometimes you've got to just search and get lucky. Or another thing that I don't think newspapers or TV stations really take, it's your audience is your best, seri- you know, your best potential source. So by letting them know, even by doing a small story on something, can often lead to something better. Again, you know, working at the age when I was doing all the work on police corruption, it started one story about a you know, a failed um, buy of a, a drug crop, and we put it on the front page, and that led to new stories. And eventually, I think it took up three years of my life. <laughs> what about the sort of contacts that aren't sort of formed through, you know, close sort of face-to-face or community-based, you know, cultivation? What about sort of leaks, whistleblowers, anonymous sources? H- how do you deal with those? How do you verify them, validate them? <coughs> protect them as appropriate? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that most mistakes made by sources are made before they contact the journalist. And I think that where you've got an obligation to try and educate sources a bit better about how to take those steps. We try and do it now. If you go to most websites like the Washington Post, New York Times, our website, you'll see we use a lot of, um, of sort of uh, technology, basically, that, you know, Signal, for instance, which is, you know, end-to-end encryption, which you can talk to journalists. But no matter what you use, you've got to be honest with the source and say that there's a possibility they're going to get caught. But having said that, and I know we're in dangerous times, we're also in great times because we're in an era where people are able to copy material on a scale never thought possible before. You know, we've been very lucky at ICIJ to have the three biggest leaks of all time. And these are people, sources, that go in there and are able to copy entire databases for 40 years and put them on a you know, thumb drive that can then give them to journalists. So while we're, you know, while we're in an era where people can trace the sources and why the sources are possibly more vulnerable than ever, we're also in an era where journalists have access to information you know, never thought possible before. And we have the computer technology now to read that information to make sense of it as well. So it's a you know, two-way street. I think you're making a really good point there, Jared, about the sort of the slightly ambivalent 
relationship that investigative journalism must have to technology. On the one hand, you're pointing out, I think, something a number of commentators have said, that some of these large-scale investigative reveals have only been possible because of you know, the kind of um, access to vast data. On the other hand, I guess, mass surveillance, data retention laws, anti-terrorism legislation, they're all kind of going in the other way, aren't they? Eroding sort of legal source protection in a certain degree for journalists. Um, the Australian Federal Government has recently proposed new foreign interference laws, which I think a lot of people are anxious about the proposed definition of espionage and what that might mean for otherwise standard sort of journalistic practice. Um, without legal source protection, obviously this is much more difficult for both whistleblowers and journalists alike. I guess that sort of returns us to the idea of investigative journalism's uh, watchdog role and function. Um, across a number of comments that different panellists have made that's come out obviously as a very sort of strong piece, the idea that it's a, um, a check to otherwise unbridled power. It's um, a channel that's determined to think about public interests um, in, in a way that is often in contradiction um, to some pretty powerful political or, or other interests. What do you think about that watchdog function? Is it, is it a... Is it a genuine um, capacity of investigative journalism? Um, I can say now, in relation to FOI, and I'll see FOI federally and then all the states, it's only a strong as a watchdog. Um, so, for example, um, the, the laws in Victoria are so woeful um, that the watchdog doesn't have much power at all FOI So, um, as a result, it's really hard to get information in Victoria. Whereas New South Wales and Queensland are quite good. Um, Despite everything that um, the current government is trying to do to FOI federally, um, the OI, the information Commission Australia Commission is doing its best. At least it's got its funding back, but it, you know, it is being tough on this government. Um, and the board has WA and I think the other ones I worked in, WA and South Australia is a pay. Like I suppose in light of the whole nine Fairfax merger, um, a lot of people, there's sort of a lot of dissatisfaction with the media generally at the moment and um, you get people sort of crowing about it on Twitter and things saying, oh well, you know, journalists are so biased these days and left wing or right wing, you know, we're, we're happy to see the entire profession collapse. But um, most people don't tend to realise how important journalism's watchdog function is until they need it. and. I mean, it comes out in so many different ways, um, like with, you know, the, the Teacher's Pet podcast and, and Lynn Dawson and, you know, a family where there's been a murder and there's been an injustice and there's no one else that they can turn to or, um, you know, victims of child abuse or, in my case, with PFAS, these people had been let down by every other institution. There was no one left for them to go to except for the media. And that's where we stepped in. Um, and so it really concerns me with the whole contraction of the industry that um, these people are going to be left with no one to go to anymore, whether you know, they're victims of, I mean, like Adele Ferguson's victims in um, franchises and things. That, you know, it can come out in a myriad of different ways. Um, but, yeah, if the media's not there, I'm just not sure who's going to be standing up for them. Right, that's quite a sort of a sobering um, analysis, a kind of a public very sceptical of, of journalistic sort of practice and value until 
they actually need that truth-speaking kind of function, usually because of some tragic or, or difficult social, political situation. I think that's a really <laughs> good way of saying it. People do things when they're not being watched. I think that's a, a very um, person-centred way of thinking about how the, the force of investigative journalism um, might unpack. Can I ask you to join me in thanking our panellists, the Walkley Foundation and the University of Sydney. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.